I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome back to the Weekside Podcast. I am Connor Orr alongside Jenny Vrentis. And Jenny, uh, this was a wild weekend in the NFL. We had overtimes. We had big injury news. We had Taysom time, which was a thing that I didn't even know existed. And I'm not ready for it because in a lot of ways, I think the two of us are still recovering from Tebow time. And I think we need a little bit of uh, a little bit more of an extended period between those. But Taysom time is uh, what's happening right now. And, uh, you know, I don't know. This was a whack. Wacky, uh, wacky weekend. It was definitely a wacky weekend, and it's been a wacky season overall. So lots to discuss on today's show. Yeah. What was like, I don't know, like I feel like I was bouncing around. We had mm-hmm. talked last week about how good this schedule was, but then all of a sudden a bunch of these games that I didn't think were good all of a sudden demanded our attention, and we'll get to all this later. But, you know, who thought I'd be this locked in on, you know, uh, uh, Dolphins, uh, Broncos, and a game like that, or, you know, especially the, the Eagles and what's going on there. But it's all, uh, it's all just uh, very interesting. And the Colts really made the end of the Green Bay game interesting and that was a huge win for them and then Ravens Titans was thrilling till the end so a lot of uh a lot of matchups that had a lot of spice to them Connor speaking Hopefully of the- like your Thanksgiving menu oh yeah well I, I'm I'm crafting that as we speak and um listeners will be happy to know that like I'm trying to incorporate some some vegan forward stuff in there but the one thing that had to get done was I had to make the phone call to uh, to Grammy this week to get um, my favorite dessert recipe because I you know I'm on my own this year um, and so I had to learn how to make butterscotch delight um, so that was like kind Ooh, of the big thing um, she, she said don't worry I don't think you can even you can screw this up and uh, so she gave me uh, the recipe it's just kind of like pudding and Putting basically butterscotch pudding on a graham cracker crust with Cool Whip on top of it, and that's oh, that like, sounds amazing. Yeah, you, know, you chill it all, and then like you know you have that. But other than that, I'm like kind of a big stuffing guy, dark meat, and then you know, uh, very rarely do I like indulge in like white bread anymore. But King's Hawaiian rolls are like a must for me. I don't know. That's like a oh. very once in a blue moon thing. What about you? Well, our big thing growing up was always breaded green beans. So we loved those. Then when I started eating gluten-free, my mom would use like almond uh, flour to bread the green beans. And my sister has been in protest for years because <laughs> she maintains that that breading is nowhere near as good as the regular bread comes. But that was always a, a traditional staple. Your dessert reminded me of something we made as kids, uh, Doolittle Squares, which was also a cramp 
cracker crust. It was it's a more of a cookie than a pudding, but it just reminded me because it has butterscotch, uh, butterscotch chips, chocolate chips, coconut, uh, nuts, Ooh. condensed milk, all layered together on the graham cracker crust. So that's more of a holiday thing than Thanksgiving specifically, but just reminded me when you described your your dessert, Connor. And you know, I just I always prefer the cranberry sauce out of the can. I me have to too. Say. I have me to too. Say. I'm so glad, Connor. That was like a uh, one of those things, especially since I've tried to start eating better, um, you know, probably like a year or so ago and really tried to start to like pivot towards that. But that's the one thing I can't give up is like mm-hmm. the gelatinous, like like I need to see the markings on the can in the cranberry sauce to know it's the right one. It's like the ocean spray one. And everyone else like, you know... Um, my grandma who's a wonderful cook like has the the great organic cranberries and you stew them and, <laughs> right. and it's like but she stops at the grocery store every year for me because i need that can and i don't know why it's just uh i don't know maybe it's like the right mixture of like it's a good like palate cleanser or like you can mix it in with the turkey and stuff i don't know what the, what the what it is but i need that it, it goes with a lot of different things. And my dad is a big jello guy, speaking of gelatinous things. Ooh. So we always have jello. Generally, it's lime jello with pineapples in it. So hmm. we always have that. That's just like a, a thing that my dad has always loved. So my mom makes all these jello permutations, which again, I know this is not high cuisine, but it's like <laughs> comfort food. So she had one that was like orange with carrots in it. And then, Connor, when I was a kid on swim team, we'd have swim banquets and we would make jello cups that were blue jello with like uh, gummy sharks and Swedish Ooh. fish in the little cups with a whipped cream on top. So now we've gone down a jello sidebar. But listen, comfort food is more important now than ever. And even if people can't be with their loved ones on Thanksgiving, hopefully you can eat some dish that reminds you of being together with everybody uh, until it's safe to do so. I have, a, I have a weird Jello take, um, okay. and I think that there are people of a certain age. Um, our parents certainly fall into that bracket um, where, like, Jello was like the thing back then, and you know, it was like the the thing that you served at the coolest dinner parties, you know. And then once you started floating all sorts of stuff in there, like that was the cool thing. Much in the way that I know you and I are anti burrata, but like, you know, much in the way that now, like, the cool thing to do is like slice a gross piece of cheese over like a plate of charcuterie or something like that. Like, we're going to do that when we're old and everybody else is going to think that's disgusting. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. I think that that's sort of like how it goes. But when, when it's cool, when you're in your formative years, I think that you just can't get rid of that. That's like why. Certain people love fondue. Like our parents probably just like they love fondue. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like all the jello molds of the past. So, yeah, it's definitely of a different era. But no doubt. But all right, all right. Connor, let's jump into the topics. What do we got today here for number one? Okay. Kasem time, as we teased, was everything Sean Payton hoped for, coupled with a strong defensive performance that kept the Saints on track while Drew Brees is sidelined with multiple rib fractures. Do you believe now that the Saints have found their Brees successor? I believe what I believed going into the game, and that's that they don't want Jameis Winston to have the same sort of surge that Teddy Bridgewater did, which would increase his market and I think they would like to hang on to Jameis Winston for the long term and make him the successor. But I think that T- Taysom Hill is 
better than we thought for now. Like, you know, I think that we were all Roddy White, right? Did you see Sean Payton had retweeted Roddy White yeah. as soon as the game was over? But we, I don't want to speak for you, but I felt like most of us felt that way, that this was going to be an unmitigated disaster. Um, you know, this was a former collegiate quarterback who, you know, people pushed back when I wrote yesterday that he was middling in college, but, you know, 58% completion percentage, a lot of his production was on the ground uh, as a rusher. And then he further developed his body to fit this hybrid tight end blocking role. And, you know, to me, I think that that might be one of the more amazing things that Peyton's done in his career is designed something for this. I think it maybe says a little bit more about him than it does Taysom Hill. But I think it's pretty shocking to see that you can probably get by with this guy for another couple of weeks if you need to. Yeah. And you wrote about that on Sunday. And I thought that was really smart about the credit that Peyton deserves for designing an offense. And he did it to not just use him as a runner. He created ways to effectively and efficiently use Hill as a passer to show that he could be a passer, knowing that a multidimensional attack is harder to defend. You know, on the Monday morning podcast with Gary Gramling, he kind of shot down my little comparison here. But I have to say, it came to mind on Sunday watching the Saints. I just couldn't help but having flashbacks to Peyton Manning and Brock Osweiler, where Osweiler steps in for an aging quarterback who's lost some of his physical ability, uh, handles things for a few games, gives a promising sense of the future, uh, and it turns out to be fool's gold. And as Gary pointed out, it's not fair to compare Hill to Osweiler, and there really aren't a lot of similarities there other than the fact that they happen to be stepping in uh, for an ailing Hall of Fame quarterback. But I think it's hard to say after a handful of games that this is the answer. And my thought going in was that it'll probably work for a few weeks, which this season is all they need. But then the question is, is there enough there that it will sustain for a full season? Is there enough there that he can be the guy moving forward? And I think even if he performs well in Breeze's three or four week absence, that that will still be an open question. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, you know, he he was good. I mean, and, you know, I think what really blew my mind there was that he was he had the fourth highest completion percentage above expectation among all quarterbacks on Sunday, which does suggest that there is some arm talent there, that he was completing passes that he shouldn't have, although that also means that his receivers were catching passes that um, maybe uh, people didn't expect that they would catch. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's interesting, but I, I can't imagine that Peyton is going to, especially now with the salary floor they've created for Taysom Hill, right, and, and using the first-round tender that they did, I can't imagine that they're going to build off of that for the long term. I think that that just it doesn't feel sustainable to me. Let's see them play some other teams that aren't the Falcons while also crediting the fact that, yeah, it was a brilliant game plan. It worked out well, and he's won some games with, you know, a lot of different talent. And that's, you know, a lot of coaches I don't think have the leeway that Peyton does in terms of the amount of time that he gets to spend with his quarterbacks as opposed to sort of the rest of the team and, and what his other responsibilities are there. But it, it was a job well done. I mean, they got it done. But, I you know, I to me, it's like I, I'm not ready to make this a, a long-term uh, base it off of it's it's just far too small of a sample size. Yeah, um, and and Jameis is still like like 
if he can do that with Taysom Hill, then what could he do with Jameis Winston, right? With like a, an actual, you know, a, a quarterback that has that extreme pedigree and that that raw talent that is just begging for somebody to mold like he is molding Taysom Hill. Well, we'll have a couple more games of a window and a relatively soft schedule. They have the Broncos, although we've seen the Broncos be feisty at times. Uh, they play the Falcons again and then the Eagles uh, before a December 20th game against the Chiefs. So it's a not a bad section of the schedule to have Hill in there and to have this little audition, but definitely more data needed. Yeah, no doubt. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, topic number two, Connor. Want to take that one? Yeah. Joe Burrow sustained the kind of fit that every team fears for their franchise quarterback. His leg planted in the turf while the defenders crashed into the knee, ending his season. Though they're playing on a bad Bengals team, Burrow showed plenty of promise his rookie season. What does the team need to do to ensure it doesn't waste his talent? First of all, I mean, that just gruesome, right? Like you see that coming and you see the foot planted and you see the defenders on each side. And that like it almost while the Theismann hit with Lawrence Taylor was just the one guy, it does remind you of that, right? Like it, it does take you back to that moment where it's like, oh, God, like this is about to happen, you know, and it, it really is like an uneasy like moment there before the collision. Yeah, and then you see him down on the turf grabbing his knee and you could see the doctor coming out and they were immediately doing the mechanical tests for an ACL. So it was pretty clear right away what had happened and just a devastating blow for Burrow and the Bengals. I mean, he's really been carrying the team and, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't have a lot of wins to show for it, but they've been competitive at times. He's shown... Uh, remarkable ability to make things even while under a lot of duress. I mean, they've had so many offensive line combinations um, and Zach Taylor has really put a lot on Burrow's shoulders because he's had to, I mean, that was his only hope of winning games. And I think ultimately we saw Burrow pay the price for that because he's been at risk. He's been playing behind a line that is in dire need of reinforcements and trying to do the best he can And ultimately, it was, you know, the worst possible outcome you could have for a quarterback that's just trying to play through it and make things work. Yeah. And to me, if I'm the Bengals in this moment, you think about two things. You think about how thankful you are to have a guy like Burrow who, 
you know, not to say that there's any doubt when anybody gets hurt and this is an individual thing, but he is the kind of person that I think is going to attack this rehab. You know, he's he's had that um, that kind of personality throughout his career. But I think you also have to take this as a lesson that's like, holy crap, we have to upgrade everything around him. Like we were not ready. And, and that's symptomatic of teams picking at the top of the draft, right? I mean, you're there for a reason. And one of the reasons is you have a terrible offensive line. Um, but and, and if you're taking the quarterback, you can't also take a left tackle. It's just kind of how things work. But, you know, they didn't really replenish that position at all um, in the draft last year. Um you know, the year before that, uh, the two years prior to that, they both spent first round picks on the offensive line, one which didn't work out and another um, where they had injury issues. But you can't like you can't squander something like this. Like Joe Burrow is already so good that you need to come into next season with, you know, a top 15 offensive line, which is, um, you know, depending on what analytics you prefer i mean both justin herbert and Tua tunga vailoa both have that you know and i think that you can see that that sort of aids their development a little bit yeah absolutely the the Bengals will be in good position to draft a top tackle looks like they'll be picking in the top three so they can use that top pick on on reinforcements for burrow and figure out other ways to build around him. I mean, I will say the Bengals showed some willingness last year to kind of depart from their usual ways and spend a little bit more in, in free agency, bringing in some defensive players, for instance. But this was always the concern with Burrow going to Cincinnati is would there be the supporting cast around him? Uh, would he be in a place where he would be able to thrive? And you know, you're seeing Herbert play as well as he has. You know, things have been up and down a little bit for Tua, but he's he's on a, a good team. Um, and you remember back at the draft, you know, Burrow was the consensus number one. So seeing him be in a situation where it's harder for him to thrive, but he was still doing everything he could to succeed, um, you just hope that they are able to build enough around him and to do it quickly to make sure that, you know, as he recovers and he heads into making a return next season, that he comes into a much better situation than the one he's leaving. You know, bad franchises are bad for a reason. And, you know, and obviously things don't work out, but you wonder like, you know, and, and you can argue that it's not working out in New York necessarily either, but, you know, guys like Dave Gettleman get banged a lot, but look at the effort that he put into having an offensive line that was ready to sustain, you know, a rookie quarterback. And you can say, you know, well, Andrew Thomas isn't playing well or whatever, but the investment was made. Um, and you could say that about a couple teams. I think Miami also did a great job of, you know, yes, they traded away Laramie Tunsil, but then immediately you started seeing all the capital being spent on making sure to fortify that unit with the knowledge that they were going to draft a, you know, a successor at quarterback back and you know I, I just think it it shows you know obviously a tra- team in transition but also you know the, the- not a lack of planning, but you're just exposed. And in, in that moment, there's nothing more you can do, you know, and now it's sort of a, a wasted season. But you do wonder if, you know, Cincinnati has two wins. Um, if they don't win another game, you know, how interesting it's going to be if they kind of creep towards the top. Is there going to be an ability to maybe, uh, you know, uh, double or triple this equity if teams are kind of moving up for a quarterback? So it'll be an interesting uh, it'll be an interesting couple weeks there. Yeah, and this is always the eternal 
team building question is when do you take the quarterback? And, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's a passer that you can't miss on, you want to take the quarterback that gear, but you also want to take the quarterback when you have the surrounding cast, you would like to have the offensive line built up a little bit before you get the quarterback. And so that's kind of what teams have to weigh. And I think you make a good point about the giants, you know, they tried to do that and, you know, the Barkley pick has been dissected and criticized rightly so, but the idea was kind of building this supporting cast for when they did select the quarterback. I mean, like, maybe this is like a thing that if if any GMs are listening to the pod, I'm sorry, but like maybe if you roll your eyes, but, you know, um, but like, is it too simplistic to say that you would want to draft an offensive lineman and a quarter cornerback every year? Like that, that, like, to me like and you know that's maybe that's way too simplistic but like every year you want to bring in somebody to be able to compete at those positions because Mm -hmm. of how valuable and integral they are um and how hard they are to replace but uh maybe that's Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe that's too simplistic to say i mean obviously you can't do it in the first round every year and you need talent elsewhere but those two positions would to me seem like ones that you would want to draft every year no, I mean, I agree. It's it's hard to win without them. And, you know, we saw the Cowboys when they had that sturdy offensive line for so long had success uh, in large part because of that. So it's a it's really a, a game changer. Or you look at, for instance, Mark Sanchez when he came to New York. Obviously, his career didn't pan out. But when he had early success as a rookie, he had a really strong offensive line. And when you don't have that, then you end up scrambling and looking for ways to get that and that lends to for instance when the texans got tunsil they overpaid for him but that was because they had to they Mm -hmm. needed someone to protect deshaun watson to have a functional offense that year yeah no definitely um all right what do we have for uh number three because i think that this dovetails nicely from the burrow discussion here yeah Tua and the Dolphins ran into a little bit of trouble in Denver, which resulted in Brian Flores benching the first round pick and turning to Ryan Fitzpatrick to try to win the game. Though everyone involved afterward made it clear that Tua is still the starter moving forward. Did you agree with this decision, Connor? Uh, mm, yes. I don't know. Look, Brian Flores is, is hard to disagree with right now. Like, I think that this guy has just such a the pulse of his team uh, and understands that. And we don't know his relationship with Tua and what that's like. And maybe the way that he understands it, this is going to benefit Tua more in the long term. I would say, like, you know, if this is anybody else, um, I, I'm probably more willing to throw the book at them for uh, being irresponsible. But the Dolphins have done everything so responsibly up to this point that maybe he thought this was a teaching moment, you know, a learning moment where, you know, Tua needed to slow down and sit down and watch Ryan Fitzpatrick do this. But whatever it was, I mean, I don't know. I, I find it hard to criticize Flores there because just everything else about this rebuild has been so methodical. Yeah, and I think it was also kind of a move that came out of survival. At that moment, they needed a two-minute drive to win. Tua had been struggling with the pressure the Broncos were bringing at him, and so Flores thought in that situation the best move was to put a veteran in there who might be better able to diagnose the pressure, react to it, know where it's coming from. Uh, I also use this analogy on the MMQB morning show on Monday, Connor, which I don't think Gary liked either. But then, of course, you know, the (laughs) Fitzpatrick interception, you know, it's like the 
clock strikes midnight, essentially, on, on Cinderella. Fitzmagic always runs out, which, in fairness, he was trying to make a play. There weren't a lot of options. You kind of sometimes just have to try to make something happen. Um, but you see why Flores turned to Tua. They're, they're building for the future, but they also are in the situation where they're trying to make the playoffs this year. Um, and so uh, if you have Tua in a situation where there's this game and he kind of has his rookie moment where, as a lot of rookies do, he's facing a lot of pressure, sort of struggling under that pressure. He, he has the ability to go back to the veteran. And it does seem, as you alluded to, Connor, like he has the culture where he can do that and explain, this is why I did it, but you're still our guy. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I think that this is, you know, it's a different kind of rebuild, right? It's not this totally static situation that we've seen in the past where you have to do everything a b c d the dolphins are trying a lot of things different which you know credit to them i think that they're you know trying something interesting and trying something new here but it'll be interesting to see how Tua responds and i think the other thing too is that his relationship with ryan fitzpatrick has been very good and mutually beneficial and you know you're hoping that all of this sort of springboards into something um better for the future but just a weird loss for miami like yeah. you know I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like this is one of the, you know, not even a speed bump game. Like this is one that they just plow right past on route to uh, um, continuing that playoff push. And all of a sudden it's like now their chances look a little bit murkier than they did before. I think it shows the impact that a pass rusher can have that like mm -hmm. on a team like the Broncos where, you know, they've just been kind of mediocre all season, but they've gotten some of these surprising wins because they can get after the quarterback. Yeah, if nothing else, I mean, Vic Fangio, I, you know, I think the way that they've handled the offensive side of the ball maybe hasn't been as ideal, but I mean, that defense is so tried and true. And if you look at, you know, going back to Chicago, the way what he did there and, you know, they are perpetually difficult to stop, you know, mm -hmm. defensively. And so there, there's something to be said there um, for sure. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just loved uh, your Dolphins pick uh, so much for the playoffs, and I'm like, you know, just a little bit bummed out when when, I, when that gets affected in any way, shape, or form, you know? Yeah, I mean, I kind of doubled down, and I said that they would win the I division, know. which further drawing the ire of Bills fans, Connor. God, they are just everywhere. And we're, you know, you guys are having a good season. Just enjoy it. Don't listen to us. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I enjoy Bills fans, and I know that you do too. I love but, Bills um, fans. They're coming after us a little bit for our picks, which, hey, rightfully so, you know. I underestimated on multiple counts, but I figured midseason was a time to double down on the Dolphins, so we'll see what happens. I would say that I am happy for Bills fans because it's always sort of been there like milieu, you know, that's like, it's how they've been. And so they've, they've been perpetually disrespected and they've always wanted, and they've always ridden with their teams. So I'm enjoying this run for them far more than I have enjoyed. Like, you know, I think back to 2015 and how I was like tortured by Panthers fans for the whole season, wanting more respect. And I was just like, who are you guys? You know, you're not a, <laughs> at the time that you were like 10 years into being a real team. You know, you're not a real fan. I'm sorry. You know, um, or the, the Seahawks. This. Yeah. yeah. Or the Seahawks after they won the first Super Bowl, like, you know, a lot of chest thumping there. And it's like, you know what? The, I don't consider you real fans, but this is, um, you know, this is good. So we deserve all this, Bills. Enjoy your uh, enjoy your run to the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, number four here. The Eagles' woes continued in a road loss to the Browns that dropped them to three six and one. 
Bird teams struggling, uh, though they still are atop the NFC East. And the topic to Philly has now turned to, should they bench Carson Wentz? My goodness. Uh, What do you think, Jenny? My thoughts are you bench Wentz if he's the only thing wrong with the offense. Mm -hmm. And I just think there are so many things wrong with the offense. The the receiving receiver situation, uh, there's mistakes on every play, there's bad play calls. There are just so many things. I think if you look at the future of the Eagles, you should try to salvage once, but you might need to make a coaching change. That's how I feel. Interesting. Really interesting. What do you think? Well, you know, it's it's weird. Like, you know, I think that let I would give Carson Wentz the rest of the season because what are you really getting out of this playoff berth anyway, right? You're right. going to get throttled, you know, and I think it's much more important to be able to come out of here saying, okay, we got him back on track um, mm. than, uh, than anything else. And so I think that Carson Wentz is running out of ground to um, – to use injuries as an excuse. Like I'm looking at their starting lineup on Sunday and they had Jalen Rieger was healthy, Jason Peters, um, Kelsey, Lane Johnson, Dallas Goddard. Um, you know, all of these guys were available. Uh, Alshon Jeffrey was available. Um, you know, Miles Sanders was available. Uh, so, you know, to me, it's like, okay, the, the narrative at the beginning of the season was that this team was ripped apart by injuries, which is true. Um, mm-hmm. But now, uh, you're starting to get everybody back. Theoretically, you can embody a little bit more of what you um, wanted to try to do at the beginning of the season. But you know, two or three weeks from now, if this is um, still the case, I mean, that's that's scary because there there are moments when uh, you know Wentz is really doing things that you know just look like he's making a massive regression. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. and it's it's almost like really strange. I thought Seth Walder from ESPN who does ESPN analytics um, had an interesting stat earlier today where he said on plays with zero pass rush wins, which means that no defender has beat his blocker and is within, within 2.5 seconds of the snap. Carson Wentz's quarterback rating is 44. Wow. It's complete, that is a really completely stat. clean pocket for at least two and a half seconds, which mm-hmm. I mean, the lay person, I can't even get out of my chair in two and a half seconds. But, um, you know, that is stunning. Right. I mean, and you look across the league at other situations and it's like, wow, you know, that is uh, that's crazy. I mean, I, I just don't know. At first mm-hmm. I was like, well, it's just injuries. But now I don't know, you know, right. what, what is happening here? Right. Yeah. I mean, he's he's definitely lost confidence. That's clear when you watch him play. And I guess I'm just starting to wonder if he needs a different person to shepherd him through to call the plays. Uh, They lost so much of that magic from what they had the Super Bowl season. And, you know, Wentz has had his own injuries since then, obviously the ACL back injury. Um, but they also had a big change in sort of the offensive triumvirate of, of uh, offensive coaches and people who had imp- input into the, the game plan, including the loss of Frank Reich. Um, so I'm, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I just am not willing to f- forget the way that Wentz was playing that season. Like as an MVP contender, the, he would have been the MVP had it not been for the knee injury. 
if you're an Eagles fan, who do you want to keep long term? Do you keep Doug Peterson long term or do you want to keep Wentz? Like, would you rather salvage Wentz or would you rather keep the theoretical architect of your offense? So obviously the decision makers have a lot more information than we do. They see everything that goes on beyond behind the scenes. And so I don't want to pretend like I have all of that information, but I would say once Connor, because I haven't seen the offense continue to progress. And I also mentioned this on the Monday show last week, but Part of me just wonders if these coaches who come out of the Andy Reid tree have a lot of success in that first year because they're coming out of this offensive think tank with all of these avant-garde ideas that are up to date, that are exactly what needs to be done right then. But then they don't have that Andy Reid magic to keep continuing evolving the offense, continuing growing the quarterback, finding new ways to do things. And they just kind of get stuck. Um, and maybe that's a harsh rebuke on Peterson. And obviously, it's a tough situation. He's the one that earned them their long sought after Super Bowl title and Wentz didn't play in the Super Bowl. So there's obviously this tough decision there for Eagles, uh, for the Eagles to make. But I, I just, it's hard for me to remember the way that Wentz played and just think that that's totally gone. It's interesting to look at the path of the Eagles and other teams since really since the departure of Reich, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, in particular, and, you know, look at kind of what he's been able to do in Indianapolis. And I'm not saying he was the reason for the success in the Super Bowl. um, But, you know, I was able to, you know, Back when our former boss, Peter King, was here, I did get to travel with him to do the post-Super Bowl wrap-up with the Eagles that year. And, you know, to see the way that they kind of all work together to come up with stuff. You know, Frank Reich had a big say. John Filippo had a big say. Um, you know, and the way that they collaborated on this offense, it's like, you know maybe Peterson needs that second guy or that sounding board. And it looks like it, there's still been a struggle to find that person, you know, that can kind of feedback from a quarterback's perspective, uh, an additional quarterback's perspective, as well as Reich did. I, I just think it's interesting that they have struggled to find that mojo ever since he uh, departed to Indianapolis. Yeah, absolutely. And that is reflected in the number of coaching staff changes that they've had. So I think if you're the Eagles, you have to say at the end of the season, and I am with you, Connor, like even if they make the playoffs, none of the NFC East teams like have indicated that they're going to make a lot of noise or any noise at all in the playoffs. (laughs) Right. So, so, you know, this idea that if you stay with once you're sacrificing the season, well, it seems like it's a season that's going nowhere anyway. So I think it's more important to get whatever information you need to get out of it for the long term. Um, but what do you ask Doug Peterson to do from here? You know, it doesn't seem like you can go forward with both Wentz and Peterson at the end of the season is what I'm trying to say. Shout out to our editor, uh, uh, diehard Eagles fan, Mitch Goldich. I posed this question to you on Slack earlier this week. I said, would, you know, and, and he, he right now a week ago, as of a week ago, he was like gliding to a division title. He was very uh, uh, excited about this, thought it was a foregone conclusion. And he was all in on division title because his point was, if you look back at your halcyon days as an Eagles fan, <laughs> which is a word that he, a phrase that he prevented me from using in print. So I'm going to Connor has now. been banned, but there is no <laughs> such ban on the podcast. I like yes. it. And it was a topic where you're talking about Mitch and the Eagles. This is perfect. Go ahead. Boom. 
Uh, and he said, you know, if you look back at your great days as an Eagles fan, you're going to say, oh, awesome. We won whatever, three division titles in four years with Doug Peterson. Like, wasn't that a great run? And you're not going to single out this year. Although I would uh, probably contend that the putridness of this season in particular, Mm -hmm. um, it would merit an asterisk, but I don't know. Mitch is saying you just lump it in with the good times and you, uh, and you say it's a continuation of the good times, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a season that we use as a benchmark for a while in the other way that it's going to be. Well, at least it's not as bad as the 2020 NFC East <laughs> race. I agree. Yeah, I think that I think it's definitely going to be like that. All right. Last topic. Connor, this one's for you. All you right. wrote a great primer last week. Are you running a losing franchise? Here's how to fix it. So for all of the owners who obviously listen to the Weekside podcast mm-hmm. every week, let's have some of your pearls of wisdom. It's like some saying owners like, you know, stop listening to your, you know, evil cryptocurrency business TED Talks and start plugging <laughs> into the Weekside. Like this is yeah. good information that you no, need to know. It's good information, and the reason I included it as a topic is because there's a lot of teams in the league right now whose seasons are slipping away, are mulling changes. Now is a great time to be talking about this, and we try to hit on as many teams as possible, so there's a lot of teams you can lump in the (laughs) catch-all situation of heading toward the inevitable change, listen to Connor Orr as you make big decisions ahead. (laughs) God, that's scary when you put it that way. Um, (laughs) But it's I had this like stunning realization that, and and you can make fun of me if this is far too simplistic, but like I'm, I really tried to think about if I'm an owner, you know, how do I think about these situations? And, you know, if you do it right, and most owners, you know, if you're not the Maras, you're not the Roonies, you know, you're not in the building every day, you know, uh, sitting in on the meetings and grinding on stuff, you know, you're not one of the founding fathers that, that really cares about the NFL. This is sort of a play thing for you. All you have to do if you do this right is just hire a GM and a coach that will work together. And your job is to just make sure that they're still working together. That's all you have to do. Mm -hmm. And like you could do that in an hour a week, maybe less, you know, like 45 minute phone call with your GM or your head coach, depending on your reporting structure. And like, it's not that hard. And so many of them just allow this situation to become, I mean, we've seen this in countless franchises where everything just corrodes and just becomes so toxic. And, you know, just a little bit of attention put on any of this, like really could shift the way a lot of these franchises work. And I think you're starting to see the trend there where, you know, obviously like the 49ers did, they paired the head coach and the GM together and these guys were friends and they went back a long way and the GM is flexible and bends a lot to what the coach needs personnel wise. That's the formula. But how many of these teams are willing to install this and let it go? And uh, I looked up, um, I looked up the 17 teams who were in first or second place, tied for second place, and only two of them had a uh, coach in place before hiring an unrelated general manager without a relationship. And really, the second team there is the Bills, who had Doug Whaley in when they hired Sean McDermott, but then they immediately fired Doug Whaley and brought in Brandon Bean, who had worked with Sean McDermott for five years. And then the other team is the Seahawks. Every other team now is kind of following a version of this model. And if you're not one of these teams, all of a sudden you have to probably look up and say, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. It's so important to have 
coaches and GMs that have the same priorities that are on the same timeline. And I think you're exactly right, Connor, is that a lot of issues along around the NFL come out of the coach and GM just being on different pages for whatever reason. And I also think a lot of the work can be done in the years before you're ever hired. You know, there's a lot that can be helped along by professional development. And, you know, we hear a lot with the NFL getting involved to help minority candidates who might not have the same networks build that network. And I think part of that is building connections with people on the personnel side so that you know, if I ever get a job, I can work with this person. The hiring process happens so fast. And a lot of these are arranged marriages and the head coach and GM don't really have a great sense of if they can work together. Now, not saying that it's immediate magic if they do know they can work together. I mean, Detroit has been a disaster, obviously. Bob Quinn brought in his guy, Matt Patricia, um, and that has not worked out at all. But I think a lot of the pairings you referenced, Lynch and Shanahan, and Shanahan tabbed Lynch for the job knowing that they could work together. You know, I think Flores and Chris Greer had some history that they could build on together. And so um, I think finding ways to have rising coaches and rising personnel executives mingle and see who shares similar ideas. The NFL is likes to pretend that like, oh, your coach is, you know, you're, you're loyal to the organization that you're at at this moment in time and you can't think about anything else. But that's just not true. Everyone wants to advance in their careers. There's so much turnover in the NFL. And I think allowing people to build relationships around people uh, in in the league on other teams would help when you get into situation to have that be a factor that, you know, you can work with this person that, you know, you're like-minded. So you're not just learning on the fly and then figuring out right away. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. Right. I thought, uh, Flores was a great example. And, um, when you brought up his relationship with Chris Greer. So this is the thing that I hope owners take away from the 2020 season. So Stephen Ross, is a, the owner of the Dolphins, is a fascinating test case, right? Strike one was the Jill Philbin hire, and the Jill Philbin hire was a search firm suggestion, right? And what search firms do is they look at other successful organizations and they try to identify, you know, viable candidates. And at the time, the Packers were the, sort of that winning standard, right? The Mike McCarthy tree was invaluable. And so Joe Philbin comes from there and that's strike one. Strike two um, is Ross gets involved and gets personally infatuated with a candidate, Adam Gase. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, uh, Peyton Manning is, uh, you know, heavily involved there and, and, you know, kind of pushing his guy and And that's a voice that, that carries a lot of weight in the NFL. But all of a sudden, you know, the third one is, okay, Chris Greer, go make this call. You know, who do you like? Well, back when I was an area scout, we were friends, Brian Flores and I, we ran the circuit together. I know this is a great guy. This is the guy I want. Okay. Empower your, you know, empower your employees to make these decisions because they're on the ground level. And, you know, unfortunately that does lead to a little bit of that corrosive buddy system, but it also could be like the dolphins where this is a win, 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 win. Like the franchise is winning. We're diversifying the pipeline. We're empowering the right people. And all of a sudden, like you have a team that's trending in the right direction after after years of going in the opposite. Yeah, and I think that's also why Brian Flores is viewed by a lot of people as 
a person from the Belichick tree that has the chance to have success that others have not because he wasn't hired for being from the Belichick tree. He was hired for who he is and what they knew about him. Uh, And that makes a big difference. I I will always have my favorite personal story about the Flores hire, which is that I was staying at the Renaissance Patriot place, Connor. And I checked into my room and I turned around and Chris Greer was behind me. And I was like, this was the Patriots were in the playoffs. They were on the way to the Super Bowl. It was the two week gap. And I turned around and I was like, what are you doing here? Oh, right. (laughs) So they had the interview. And then later I was walking to through the lobby on our way to dinner and there emerges Flores coming out of the interview. He just had this like little notebook with me. I just no- remember thinking like, it just seemed like he was like pretty relaxed and at ease and like confident. And you know, there just was a good vibe coming out of that room. No doubt. Um, so I have two things. I have like two suggestions and then I have um four uh, quick rules that I will make all owners recite out loud in their cars as they're listening to this. Um, So the first is, you know, uh, if you're an owner out there, just say it with me. If I'm keeping my embattled general manager, I promise I will not let him or her sacrifice our salary cap trove on a horrendous free agent class with little upside in a short-sighted effort to save their jobs. So you say that with me. You repeat that. It's a memory device. Um, If I am undecided on keeping my embattled general manager, I will not let him or her run the draft and make a critical high selection that will ultimately not fit within the parameters of our new coaching staff. That's number two. Number three, if we don't have a quarterback, we should reset the market in an effort to acquire Dak Prescott. He is great. And number four, if I'm hiring a head coaching candidate who promises he spent the season hanging out with analytics guys, I will verify these claims with a trusted third party. Uh, Those are all very very important things. And then my other suggestion is just, you know, this hiring cycle is going to be weird. I think a lot of people are going to go after BNME, which is great, and they should have done two or three years ago. Um, But in every situation that I've seen, the teams who get in on a guy early are so much better off than the teams who are all clamoring to hire the hot candidate and just making this candidate a bunch of promises and slamming stuff together. Like, you know, get in on the guy that's going to be a hot candidate in three years or two years and just get him early. And I think Steve Kime had told our Albert Breer his regrets at not making a run at Sean McVay before, um, you know, it was time. And then all of a sudden everybody was interested. I think last year only the Browns interviewed Brian Dable and probably six or seven teams are going to interview him this year. Um, so a lot of, you know, just keeping that in mind, because I think you're going to be so much better off if you find your guy a year early than if you have to do this slam bang transition and try to jump into bed with somebody that you're not going to have the time to get to know. Yeah. And I think a lot of that stems from doing your own work too, and not Mm -hmm. just relying on what the, you know, the winds are telling you about who's good that year. Yeah. But you know, a search firm didn't bring the weak side podcast together. You know, this was organic right. and obviously the glowing success of said podcast, um, you know, uh, <laughs> proves proves my point even further. Well said, Connor. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on to everyone's favorite segment? The Let's Oracle. Very excited. So this Thursday uh, coming up, I'm going to have a uh, Thanksgiving Day column uh, for uh, one thing that all 32 NFL franchises should be thankful for. Um, And in addition to that, um, you know, a link to uh, 
my Twitter page, and I just encourage anybody, you know, if you have something uh, you think should be added for your team or, um, you know, this is a, a particularly, um, you know, interesting Thanksgiving in that, you know, we might all still be home. You know, if you want to reach out and just argue about football for a few minutes, my direct messages are open. I'm happy to uh, talk about the column or the podcast or anything. So just feel free and just know that I'll try to check it as many times as possible on Thanksgiving, especially if you just need to vent or talk about some football or whatever you want uh you know just know that the line is open there and so um i thought it'd be cool instead of just making a prediction to list one football related thing uh that we're thankful for here going into uh the stretch run of the season so i don't know i I can go first jenny if that's if that works for you sounds good connor i'm thankful for derrick henry like he is just so much fun to watch and you know as far as the league has come from this, you know, era of the running back and, you know, rushing on first and second down, like just watching him is such a combination of the new NFL offenses and what we're seeing, but also this just throwback character that we're never going to see again. I mean, he's sort of a Cam Newton uh, type of player in that he just breaks every mold for the position and he's just a blast to watch and he's just fun, like, you know, he just has this like stale facial expression while he's doing all these incredible things, um, just mauling people. And it looks like he's never running fast, but he's running so fast. And like, I don't know, for some reason, you know, football has been cathartic for a lot of reasons this year, but like watching him just brings me like a unique amount of joy for some reason. That's a great one. It's really fun to watch. And I, I agree with what you said about just this new mold for the position that just, defies past thoughts of what a running back should look like or how they should play so and wouldn't it be cool if you know i mean you know like you did that great story on lamar jackson and i think that the quarterback position is more important in that like we shouldn't discourage anybody from playing the position based on these old tropes but you know if that trickles down and you have a this 6'4 250 pound kid in high school who wants to play running back it's like go ahead you know why not like it's just you know everything can work in the in with the right kind of imagination right yeah and a lot of schools that were recruiting him wanted him to play at like defensive end or outside linebacker and you can't really blame them because that's what his body type is suited for but obviously he's magical as a running back so that's a great one connor Uh, Mine is an exciting AFC East race, which isn't something we have experienced in a while. Mm -hmm. So um, we've got uh, several games left. We could have an exciting finish in tow. And um, yeah, it's just like a little bonus in 2020 that maybe we didn't expect. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I hope it comes down to the stretch. I hope somehow the Patriots get reinvolved, although it's looking... uh, less and less likely but i agree yeah. that's uh that's definitely a uh, a good one and by extension of that um really everybody's favorite segment of the week um our uh our dose of levity um for uh for the weak side podcast what do we have for the the very great frentis consensus consensus my consensus this week is that i have been too slow to come around on the indianapolis colts I doubted them from the beginning, and I was wrong. And the game against the Packers really reinforced that this is a team that can win in a lot of different ways. The defense is fantastic. 
um, the additions of DeForest Buckner, Xavier Rhodes, kind of resurrecting his career in Indianapolis. Uh, they're the number one defense in the league for a reason, and that showed up. Obviously, Aaron Rodgers made plays like he always will, but the Colts defense made more plays, and Philip Rivers was obviously ailing, but they still won. And, you know, I think Frank Reich and Chris Ballard have done a fantastic job with that team. And, um, yeah, I was a little slow to come around. I wasn't sure what it would be like for Rivers. You know, the end of his Chargers career, things had really tailed off, and I just didn't know how much good football he had left. But he's in a really good situation there, and they're definitely a contender. Yeah. I. I, It's just like – I was going to bring this up at the beginning of the pod, but I'm glad that uh, you had a, uh, a Colts-related Frentis consensus. I feel like Rodrigo Blankenship is kind of one of our guys, too, you know? Like, I feel like that's a guy we could get on board with. He's like a very weak side pod guy. I don't know. I just get that vibe from him. And so... Um, <laughs> maybe he listens. You never Maybe know. he does, you know? But, you know, I, you know, everybody obviously loved the goggles, and he was kind of a cult hero, you know, coming out of Georgia. But, you know, that, that sort of uh, ties it together for me, because I did think, like, he was... I don't know. That's uh, that's my kind of guy. Like, uh, and to have him winning games is good. I like now that. Now he can be a cult hero. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm always. Uh, you've taught me well, Connor. I'm always ready for uh, for a pun. That is great. You've you you've like you've always been good at it, but like you know the 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 rise has been incredible. You know, I would say over the last like two years in particular. Like, just it's, really, it's, it's to... elite. It's Step elite. up my game to keep up with you, Connor. <laughs> well, I, if if it's a, I I feel you kind of breathing down my back now. I need to, you know, I feel a lot of pressure now to come up with some better ones. So, <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening to the Weekside Podcast. We hope you have a nice Thanksgiving, whether you're able to travel home to see loved ones or not. Um, hopefully, there are things in your life that you're thankful for and you have a few minutes to to spend uh and some joyful reflection on that and thank you also we are thankful for one of our listeners kurt who wrote in and provided feedback about the sirens that sometimes punctuate our show and that is all my fault because i live on a busy street in manhattan so we are doing our best to be mindful of when the sirens pass and not include those because I know a lot of you listen while driving. So that was helpful feedback. We will take it to account moving forward. The Weekside podcast is me, Jenny Ventus, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Marivic is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts.